You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles ready, open up and turn there with us. Continuing to uh, make our way through the book of Ephesians, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. This morning, we're going to finish up Ephesians chapter 1. We've spent about six weeks here in Ephesians 1. Didn't intend to spend that much time when I first started the book, but uh, here we are. And, and Paul has been discussing the blessings that we have in Christ. And it's important that we remember that they're in Christ. These blessings, they're not found just anywhere. They're in Christ. And, and Ephesians can be broken up into three main sections. You have the wealth of the believer, chapters 1 through 3. You have the walk of the believer, chapters 4 through the ninth verse of chapter 6. And then you have the warfare of the believer, the rest of chapter 6, that familiar passage. And in chapter 1, Paul has begun by telling us of the wealth that we have, the blessings, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 3, he tells us that. And Paul started there what would be a 203-word sentence, probably one of the longest run-on sentences that you'll ever find, certainly one of the longest sentences in in known literature, begins in verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. He finally puts a period to it of all the blessings that we have in Christ. He tells us that we've been chosen, that we've been adopted, that we've been accepted, redeemed, forgiven, that He's made His will known to us, that He gave us of His inheritance, that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that we were given the Holy Spirit as a deposit to guarantee that He's going to come back and take us home to be with Him. And now here in our text this morning, Ephesians 1, 15-23, Paul is going to pray that these blessings that he's described for us will become a part of our daily life that these blessings will become a reality in our life, that we will appropriate these things, not just, you know, be aware of them, but that they will become reality to us. And Paul prays here for the Ephesians that God would open the eyes of their heart, that he would enlighten them, that he would reveal himself to them. And there's two prayers in Ephesians, one here in chapter 1 and another in chapter 3. And it's amazing the difference between the prayers recorded in the Bible and the prayers that we so often pray. If you juxtapose the prayers in the Bible and the prayers that we pray, they're, they're, they're very different. Often we pray sort of like a laundry list, you know, and, and we pray for people that they would, you know, get stuff and that they would be healed and that their problems would go away. And, and, and our prayers are often centered around stuff, either materially or stuff going on in our life, but the prayers in the Bible are typically focused upon knowing God better. And that, I think, is something that is lacking in our prayer life. I mean, certainly we all need to pray more, and certainly many of us probably need to pray some. You know, I I would imagine that there's some of us here that, that go long periods of time without praying at all, and we need to be praying But I think we also need to evaluate how we pray and what we pray about. And it's interesting when we compare our prayers with the prayers of the Bible. Now, as we make our way through the text, I want us to notice three things. First, we're going to see the backdrop to Paul's prayer. Then we're going to see the heart of Paul's prayer. And then the key 
to Paul's prayer. So let's read our text, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding or heart being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And Father, as we open Your Word once again, God, we do it with hearts that long to know You. God, we do it with hearts that long to put these things into practice. God, we don't want to just be hearers, Lord. We want to be doers of Your Word. Take Your Word and have it produce fruit in us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the first thing we want to look at is the backdrop to Paul's prayer. It's significant that Paul gives thanks not for their love of God, but for their love for all the saints. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith, that is that you're saved, your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Paul says, I thanked God because you loved his people. And that is the real evidence of God's work in our life. Oftentimes we boast about loving God and and how much we are dedicated to God and our devotion to God. And yet that really isn't that big of a deal. That's expected of us in light of all that God's done for us. It's kind of a no-brainer. But how we demonstrate that in reality is loving people. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, the apostles said, well, who's my neighbor? You know, is that kind of ambiguous? Do I just love you know, certain people? And the answer to that question is no. You love everybody that you come in contact with. The, the literal neighbor, the person that lives right next door to you, even though they annoy you, even though you know their dog leaves little presents for you, and, and, and even though they, they park you know like every car they've ever owned in their whole life is out in front of your house as well, and, and oil pans and you know all that stuff, I mean, we need to love our neighbor. We need to reach out. And, and maybe it's the person in the grocery store. Maybe it's the lady at the bank. Maybe it's you know, somebody that, that you uh, bump into that you haven't seen for a long time. That's our neighbor. That, that opportunity that you have to love people. The real evidence of God's work in us is our love for others. The Bible actually tells us that if we don't love people, we really don't love God. The real evidence for our love of God is our love for people, our love for those around us. And so that's the first kind of backdrop to Paul's prayer. Another thing 
that I see here is that Paul prays for them while they are doing good. Notice he doesn't say, hey, I got some really bad news about you guys. I heard that, you know, everything was falling apart and I heard that you didn't have any money. I heard that, you know, you, you went out of business or, or whatever. I heard that you're in poor health. So I decided to pray for you. No, he says, man, I heard you were doing really well and things were going great. and You had faith in Jesus and you had love for the saints. So I prayed for you. That's different than how we normally pray, isn't it? We don't normally pray for people until they're like almost dead or almost broke, you know, almost evicted from their house. You know, oh, I guess I better pray for that guy, you know. But we ought to be praying for people even when they're doing well. And and I think the lesson that we see here is that Paul wasn't praying for needs. Paul was praying for people. That's the key. We often pray for needs. You know, we pray for people, like I said, when they've got big needs, But we need to be praying for people all the time. And it's interesting what Paul prays for. He doesn't pray that they would receive something that they don't have. He prays that they would understand what they do have. That's totally different too, isn't it? We're always praying that we would receive something, whether it be health or money or that wayward child would come back or that we would get that job or that promotion or that something would work out. And and we're sort of always praying that we would receive something that we don't have at the moment. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I noticed about Paul's prayer is that he prays that they would understand what they already have. And I think we need to be praying that for ourselves for others, not looking for something else, but understanding what we already have. You know, sometimes as Americans, we get so much junk that we'll actually buy something that we already have. Have you ever done that? You know, and, and then like later you'll go, oh man, I already had that thing. You know, some people have like so many DVDs that they end up buying it and they're, and they're like, oh man, I already had, you know, Harry and the Hendersons. I didn't even know that, you know. I got so many of these stupid things or you know, you go out in your shop and you can't find any tool and you're like, oh, I got to go buy this special tool. And, and then later, there it is. You already owned it. And you didn't even know. And the thing is, is that sometimes we're trying to find stuff in our life that we have at our disposal already. We're praying for stuff. God, give me this. And Lord, oh man, I need this. And the Lord's going, it's already yours. It's there. You just need to understand that you have it. And the third thing under this backdrop to Paul's prayer is that notice Paul prays for revelation. He prays for enlightenment. That, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. That the eyes of their heart would be opened. That, that's what this prayer is all about. About knowledge, about revelation, about enlightenment. And the thing about that is that notice in verse 17 that it's by the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We don't receive this knowledge, this enlightenment without the Holy Spirit. We, we cannot understand the things of God apart from the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth, right? He'll lead us into all truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so if we really want to know Jesus, it's going to be by the Holy Spirit. And that's why I think it's, it's totally backwards when um, churches put the emphasis upon the gifts of the Holy Spirit rather than upon Jesus, rather than upon knowing Him. Because the Holy Spirit always drives us to Christ. And any time that we try to put the emphasis upon the Spirit, we get into kind of weirdness. The Spirit never wanted to be the focus. The Spirit always wanted Jesus to be the focus. And He wants to drive us to Jesus. 
And so it's by the Spirit that we're going to have our eyes opened to these things. Now, the thing about the Spirit is the Bible tells us that He can be grieved and that He can be quenched. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a thing. He's not a power. It's not an it. You know, like, yeah, give me some more of that Holy Spirit. You know, pour Him in like like He's gas or something. It's not that way at all. He's a person. And we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And He can be grieved and He can be quenched in our life. And there's a little word, three-letter word, that is sort of at the very crux of how we grieve and quench the Spirit. We know it, right? Sin. Things that are opposed to God. That's how we quench the Spirit in our life. Now, when we talk about sin and we talk about quenching the Spirit, oftentimes we think of the big stuff. You know, adultery, fornication, getting high on drugs, getting drunk. We think, you know, that's going to quench the Spirit. And so when we hear that, a lot of times if we're not involved in the big stuff, then we just sort of tune it out like, hey, I'm doing okay. Meanwhile, our life is filled with pride or selfishness. Meanwhile, you know, we're, we're telling little white lies here and there. Mean, meanwhile, we're, we're completely focused upon material things and, and we're, we're greedy and lustful after the things of the world. And, and, but we're not thinking about that because, hey, I'm, I'm not involved in homosexuality, so I'm doing okay. Or, or I'm not getting high on drugs. But the thing is, pride is just as opposed to God as that. Selfishness, gluttony, lust for things is just as opposed to God as those things and can just as much quench the Spirit in our life. So let's not tune it out when we hear that. Let's be sensitive to the Spirit and ask Him, are there things in my life that are quenching you that are not allowing me to see you in totality, in completeness, that is not allowing me to have the eyes of my heart opened up. And so those are some of the backdrops to Paul's prayer. Now I want to talk about the heart of Paul's prayer, beginning there at the end of verse 17, when he says that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The first thing that Paul prays for is that we would know God. There's four things, four things at the heart of Paul's prayer. And the first is that we would know God above all else that we would simply know God. Now, if you've asked Jesus into your life and you're a believer here this morning, then you know God, but that's just a beginning. You see, we have a relationship with Jesus. And just like when I met my wife, we talked a lot when we first met and, you know, then ultimately we, we married about a year and a half later. And, and even when we were first married, I didn't know her the way I know her now. I know her a lot better now than I did then because we have a deeper relationship that's built over time. And hopefully, if you've been walking for the Lord with the Lord for any number of years, that you know Him better today than you did a year ago or five years ago. And I will say this, if you're not closer to God and don't know Him more intimately than you did five years ago or a year ago, then you're going backwards because you can't stay in the same place. There's no neutral. There's no coasting. You will go backwards if you're not going forward. And that's why I often pray before we start a service, Lord, may we leave this place today knowing you better than when we walked in. That ought to be our heart. That ought to be our prayer when we wake up in the morning. God, I want to know you better today than I ever have before. That was Paul's prayer. First thing, that you would know God. 
the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened that you might know God. The psalmist in Psalm 34 said, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what Paul wants for us, is to taste God, to see God. As John said in 1 John chapter 1, that they saw Him, that they handled Him. Are we seeing Him? Are we tasting Him? Are we handling Him? Or is it just sort of, you know, intellectual? Is it just kind of, you know, this really dry and cold religious experience that we have with God? God doesn't want that for us. God wants us to handle Him, to taste, to know Him in a deep way. Jeremiah said, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. How many people do that? Glory in their knowledge. Glory in in how smart they are. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. How many people do that? You know, glory in how strong they are. And I can, you know, bench press this or, you know, athletes, you know, glorying in their might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Of course, that's very common, isn't it? But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Do we glory in that? We're often looking for these things right here, right? Smarts, strength, power, riches. And yet, Jeremiah says, man, glory in this that you know God, that you have the opportunity to have a relationship with Him. And Jeremiah also said, you you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that's where Paul says, is where this knowledge is from and where it takes place is in your heart. It's not in your mind. It's not in in a book. It's not in a seminar. It's in your heart. And that's why... Even the Bible, you guys, as much emphasis as we place upon the Word of God, this is meaningless to you if it's not in your heart. If this is not in your heart, then it's meaningless. If this is just cold, dry information, then it might as well be, you know, a book on how to make model airplanes because that's all it is. It's just dry information. It needs to be a part of your life needs to be appropriated. It needs to be in your heart. You'll search for me and you'll find me if you seek me with all your heart. Are we seeking God with all of our heart? If we are, we'll find him. The Bible says if we draw close to him, he'll draw close to us. First thing that, that Paul prays for is that we might know God. Then in verse 18, that we might know God's calling. He says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling that we might know the calling that God has upon our life. Now, I think for a lot of people, this is like the, the thing that they never figure out. What does God have for me? And I've talked to people who have been saved for decades. Man, what does God have for you? I don't have a clue. I don't know. I'm just sort of going through the motions here, just doing my thing, and, and I don't have a clue what God has for me. And you know what? It's sad because it's not that difficult to figure out. God isn't trying to play games with us. But the thing is, is that you will not find God's call for your life. You'll not know the purpose God has for your life by sitting around. You're not going to wake up one morning and there's a memo posted on the fridge. This is what I have for you. You know, it's not going to be written in the sky. You're not going to get an email. You're going to have to just step out and see what God has for you and how He wants to use you. And it will become really clear. It will become very obvious to you where your gifts are at and where they're not. Don't be afraid to fail, but you've got to step out. And if you think you're just going to show up at church and then just blow doors out of here every week and expect to know what God's call for you is, you're really deceiving yourself. You've got to take advantage of the opportunities that are right at your door at that moment. When somebody says, you know, man, I'm just really struggling. I'm going through a hard time. And then you say, yeah, sorry to hear about that. And you just walk off. 
You've just missed an opportunity. How about saying, hey, can I pray for you right now? Can, can, I, can I take that to God for you? Is, is there a way that I can minister to you? Is there a way that I can come alongside you? Here's my opportunity. See, that person didn't talk to, to me. They talked to you. And they told you about their need. But our tendency is to go, hey, where's the pastor at? Where's one of those leader guys? Let's get them over here and let's have them fill this need. Or, you know, we hear about somebody that needs money. And, and so we're calling an organization or we're calling the church. And can you meet this need? And God, meanwhile, is saying, I really wanted you to meet. I didn't want you to call anybody. I wanted you to meet. I wanted you to fill the need. That's why you know about it. That's why you were given the information, not so that you could go find somebody else, but so that you could meet the need. And that's why when people come to me and they're like, man, Ryan, I've noticed that we really need this. I'll go, great. That sounds awesome. When do you want to start? When do you want to do it? Oh, well, I just thought, you know, I'd let you know and then you could tell somebody else. No, man, it doesn't work that way. The Lord showed you the need. He wants you to meet it. Really? Yeah. But in the meantime, when you're trying to figure out this whole thing, you just need to serve the Lord. You need to step out in faith and allow God to use your life. You see the needs that are there in the church. You see the needs that are in the community. And you just begin to meet those needs. And then God begins to, to open doors for you in radical ways. But He's not going to open those doors for you if you're just sitting around. The Bible says, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And we think often that means sit around and do nothing until God gives us a memo in the sky. And then we're like 80 years old and we're still trying to figure it out. We're still waiting for the memo in the sky. And God says, no, waiting on me is a lot like waiting on tables. When you have a waiter, does he just sit around and wait for you to yell your order across the room? No, he waits on you. He comes and he meets your needs and he serves you. That's what it means to wait on God. Step out and see how God wants to use you and he'll make his calling for you very clear. He has a calling for you. Paul prays here that we would know it. And if Paul's praying that we would know what the hope of his calling is, that means we can know it. That means... It's not a game that God's playing with us. He's given us a future and a hope for us to know and to be aware of. A third thing that Paul prays for is that we might know God's riches. It says the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? Now back in verse 11, Paul talked about inheritance as well. But there he was talking about the inheritance that we have in Christ. That we receive. All the blessings, man. It's amazing the things that we receive as being a part of the family of God. We have a rich inheritance. But now Paul is saying, look, you are God's inheritance. Do you notice how he words it here? That we would know the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. We are valuable to God. This phrase does not refer to our inheritance in Christ, but His inheritance in us. And this is an amazing truth, that God should look on us as if we are a part of His great wealth. And just as a man's wealth brings glory to his name, I mean, there's a lot of rich people in the world, and we know who they are, right? We know the Rockefellers. We know the Bill Gates. We, we know the Walton family. We, we know these names, and, and they're, they're famous people in our community, the, the Schwab family. And just as wealth brings glory to a man's name, so God will get the glory from His church because of what He has invested in us. We're part of His inheritance. He looks at us and He sees value. Now, maybe your whole life you've been told that you have no value, that you're worthless. But God says to you, says to me, I see value in you. Now, that's amazing to me because when I look at my life, I don't see a lot of value. 
But God deals with us on the basis of our future, not on our past. God sees us completed. He made an investment in us. And God has the potential or the ability to see potential like none other. He sees us already complete. It's like people that buy and sell homes that flip houses. And, you know, they'll buy this house and you're thinking, what are you doing? This thing is a dump. It's not worth even what you paid for it. And you think you're going to get more out of it? And, and they can see things that, that the normal person can't see. They, they see the addition. They see the tile on the floor. They see the kitchen remodel. They see the bathroom completely redone. And then you go back over there after six months and it's like, whoa, now I want to buy this house. And that now you have to pay five times as much because you didn't see the potential. See, anybody can notice how valuable something is when it's done. But it takes skill to see things before they're completed. And that's what God does. He looks at our life and He says, I see you complete. I see you finished. And you're valuable to me. That's what He said to cowardly Gideon. He told Gideon, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Mighty man of valor. I'm sure when Gideon heard that, he kind of turned around like, you know, he must not be talking to me. Because Gideon was a, a fearful man. He was the least in his family. And his family was the least in his tribe. And he's like, me, a mighty man of valor? Lord, look where I'm at right now. I'm down here in a wine cellar threshing wheat because I'm afraid of being attacked by the Midianites. You see, they would be out there and they would harvest their wheat and then they would, they would thresh the wheat. They would separate the wheat from the chaff. And, and you need to be outside to do that because the wind would take the chaff and blow it away as they did this process to it. But Gideon was afraid that he would be attacked because every time they brought in the harvest, the Midianites would come and attack them because it was like you know the drive-up window at McDonald's. Hey, they're, they're done. Go attack them. Steal all their stuff. And so Gideon's like, I've had enough of this. And so he's down in the cellar where they normally make wine and he's trying to thresh wheat without wind and he'd have to do it on his own. And it's a very difficult endeavor. And here God comes to him. Hey, cowardly Gideon, the guy that's so afraid that you won't even go outside to do what you need to do outside because you're afraid of the Midianites. Hey, mighty man of valor. And you know what? Gideon would become a mighty man of valor. And he would destroy the Midianites with a handful of men. Amazing. God looked at him and he saw the potential. He saw the potential in a man that nobody else would have even recognized had the ability. He did the same thing with Simon. No longer is your name Simon, which means little stone. Your name is Peter, which means the rock. What do you mean, Lord? I'm kind of afraid. I'm going to deny you. I'm going to stick my foot in my mouth all the time. But no, you're the rock. And exactly that came to pass in Peter's life as he became the pastor of the original church there in the book of Acts. Peter, Gideon, you and me, God sees potential where nobody else does. And we are valuable to him. That's what he means when he says that you would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. A fourth thing that Paul prays for under this second point, the heart of Paul's prayers that we might know God's power. That we might know God's power. He says, What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power? The word power there is dunamis from which we get our word dynamite. He's saying that you would understand the dynamic dynamite power that is at your disposal according to the working. That word working is is a word from which we get our word energy. 
something to plug into the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul is telling you and me this morning, it resides in our heart if we'll just plug into it. And we have no excuse. We have no excuse. The power is available. We just have to plug it into the wall. And you can try to you know, run the appliances at your house without power, and it's, it's, it's a lot more difficult than even doing it by hand. You know, Try to run a vacuum without power. You might as well you know, just be down there on your hands and knees picking the dust out with your fingers. Try to run the blender without power. You know, Spin that little thing around in there. And Paul just says you just need to plug it in. There's power at your disposal. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, resides in our heart far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Paul tells us that Jesus has been exalted above all the angelic hosts, the principalities, the powers. He's exalted above every name that is named, not only in this age in which Paul wrote, but in every age to come, that everything has been put under his feet, that he's the head of the church. Jesus was exalted, and that same power is given to us. And we like power. We need power. I mean, when I go to turn something on and it doesn't work, or the power goes out, you know, you get grumpy real quick, you know, if, if, if things don't work, if you don't have power. You know, you, you only go a few hours without power, and, and you think that, you know, somebody has completely destroyed your life. And we need power for everything. Everything that we do, just about, we need power for. And the same is true in our walk with the Lord. And the thing is, is that God doesn't just say, hey, I want you to go and I want you to accomplish these things. And I want you to live for me and I want you to be holy and set apart. And I want you to serve me. And hopefully you can figure it out. You know, kind of like the boss that just sort of throws you into it, you know. First day on the job and they're just like, okay, here you go. And they give you enough rope to hang yourself. And they come back like four hours later and they're like, why aren't you, you know, doing like a perfect job? Why aren't you doing it like you've known what you're doing for 10 years? And you're like, I, I don't really know what I'm doing here, you know. And they're screaming and yelling. And you're just like, man, this is horrifying. The thing is, God doesn't do that. God doesn't just throw us out there without training us, without giving us the power to accomplish it. You see, God's callings are God's enablings. God has given you the power to do these things. Which leads us really into the third point, which is the key to Paul's prayer. Paul's prayed for all these things that we might know God, that we might know God's calling, that we might know God's riches, that we might know God's power, the power that we have at our disposal. But the thing is, you guys, is that those things take sacrifice. Those things don't just come by osmosis. They take sacrifice. And Paul talks about here that these things were worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead. Now, in order to be raised from the dead, you have to die first. You see, we love Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Yeah, that's what I want. I want the power. I want all this stuff, Lord. I want to know you. I want to know your calling. I want to know the riches. I want to know the, the power that I have. But then we're not willing to make the necessary sacrifices to see it come to pass. 
You see, Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. See, that's the key. That's the key to unlocking all of these things that Paul has been talking about is that it comes through death. Jesus experienced the resurrection power and was exalted above all these things that Paul talks about here after he suffered and took the full wrath of God upon himself. And Jesus, you guys, didn't want to do that. It wasn't like he was just skipped to my loo all the way to the cross. This is great. I can't wait. No, he was in the garden and he was in such anguish that he was sweating blood. This wasn't a good day. Jesus said to the Father, if there's any other way that this can happen, let's go with that plan. Take this cup from me. And this cup wasn't like a cup of coffee or a cup of soda. This was the cup of God's wrath. This was the cup of suffering and death that would be poured out upon Jesus. And see, Jesus was wrestling there in the garden. That's what was happening. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And in the garden, Jesus was wrestling with whether or not he was going to obey the will of the Father. And ultimately, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And he obeyed. You see, Jesus took on human flesh. And in doing so, he submitted himself to the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was that Jesus would go to the cross, that he would take the wrath of God upon himself, and that he would redeem us from our sins. But it was difficult. And Jesus experienced all of this resurrection power, all of this exaltation, all of this glory as a result of that one decision that he made in the garden, which was what? Not my will, but your will be done. And you know what, you guys? We're going to leave this place in a little while, and you're going to have that same decision. We have Garden of Gethsemane's every day in our life of whether or not we're going to obey God or obey our flesh, whether we're going to give in or whether we're going to stand strong, whether we're going to do what God's asking us to do or do what we want to do. We have a choice. All of these things that we've just talked about, all of these things that God wants to be a part of our life come as a result of obedience. We often want to experience the power, but we're not willing to submit ourselves to Him in such a way that we can see it come to fruition. Are we willing to obey? Samuel told Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's not about giving your money. It's not about giving your time to come to church. It's not about sounding real good. It's about obedience in your heart. And you have a choice to make on a daily basis of whose will is going to be accomplished. And if you don't do what God's asking you to do, and you do do what God's asking you not to do, you will not see these things come to pass in your life. You will not know God intimately the way He wants you to know Him. The eyes of your understanding will not be enlightened. The eyes of your heart will not be opened to see God clearly. You will not know His call upon your life. You will not know how valuable you are to Him because you'll be so ridden with guilt and shame about your disobedience to Him. You will not know God's power in your life because you're quenching it. You need to go back. You need to find that place, that Garden of Gethsemane, and you need to say, God, not my will, but your will be done. I want to obey you so that I can see these things come to fruition in my life. Very simple, and yet it's very difficult. Let's stand and pray together. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com 
or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.